All right, we are in a series on the book of John, and we're in John chapter 4. And uh, I want to I be honest with you guys, you know, I'm all, Sunday mornings before, before teaching, I'm always nervous. I just see, feel like this morning I'm more nervous than normal, and I just want to warn you of that, because usually when I'm more no- nervous than normal... I say things sometimes I later regret. So I just want to warn you, if something comes out of my mouth that you go, that was not in the message, you'll know what's going on, all right? So we're talking about the harvest, John 4, 27 to uh, 42. And just to help you figure out, just kind of review, let's look at where we're at. You should see up there, there's a map, the Mediterranean seas to the left, to the south, to the bottom is Judea, north is Galilee, right in the middle is Samaria. Now, remember, the Sumerians are those half-breeds that the Jews hated, and they hated the Jews. And there was, when we say there was bad blood between them, we mean literally they shed blood between them. Uh, at one point, the Jews from Jerusalem marched north to right there at the middle to, to, uh, to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, and they slaughtered a whole bunch of worshipers, and they raised their temple to the ground. And not too much longer... Uh, maybe, uh, after that, the Samaritans tried to do the same thing. So it's not just that they are it's bad blood. It's because they've killed each other over this stuff, right? So most Jews would always, if they needed to go from Judea to Galilee, they would go west to the right, and then they would go on the other side of the Jordan River, go up along the river, and then cut back over to avoid going through Samaria for multiple reasons. One is because they hated them, but secondly, and they considered them unclean, but secondly because they feared a legitimate fear. You know, it was something that was on their minds. It was something that could happen. And so what did Jesus do? He had to go to Galilee and it said he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because God directed him to do that. God directed him to go someplace that most Jews would not want to go, to go to the place that would be least likely for him to go, to go to the place that a a good rabbi would never go. So he goes, and, and right there where you can see, you know, there's Sychar, that's the tent, and then there's, uh, that's where the mount is, that's where Jacob's well is, and Jesus meets this woman at Jacob's well in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of a place where no self-respecting Jew would go. And he meets her at the wrong time of day. They get there around noon, and this woman shows up with her water jug. And that's a clear sign. Most people go to the well early in the morning when it's cool, get their water for the day. Then they go later in the evening as it starts to cool again and get water for the evening. She goes at noon. The most probable reason, because we've learned some of her background, is because she's not someone that anyone else wanted to associate with. So it was better for her to go at noon. She got less flack. She got less, less condescending looks. She got less little remarks under the breath, or maybe just out loud. It was less trouble for her because there would be no one there. So she goes there, and here's this man. And they have this conversation. This conversation, just a reminder of what we've been through, breaks all kinds of barriers. It breaks religious barriers. It breaks, breaks racial barriers. It breaks sexual barriers, moral barriers. Jesus is not supposed to be talking to her. And she's not supposed to talk to him. And yet they have this. And he gently, he's sensitive, he's caring. It's very interesting if you think about how you deal with people, how Jesus deals with people. What does he do? He lets her talk. He doesn't lecture her. 
He lets her talk. He imparts truth, but he does it with love. It's amazing when you study this and look at it. He gently forces her to look in the mirror and see herself. He guides towards spiritual things. She questions concerning the proper kind of worship of God. And and we talked about that last week. And Jesus taught her it's not where you worship, it's who you worship. And then he confronts her with himself. The very last verse, in verse 26 that we just looked at last week, in the Greek it it literally reads, I am is the one talking to you. And that is a clear, a clear claim of divinity. That's he's saying, I'm God. He uses ego a me, I am, which points back to Yahweh at the burning bush. Moses says, What's your name? And God says, Tell them, I am sent you. I exist. I have always existed. I am infinite. I am. And so he confronts her with himself. He just talked to her about worship, and now what is he saying? I'm the one you should be worshiping. It's me. You want to know the proper place of worship? It's not the place. It's the person, and that person is me. So we're going to look at the, now we're going to look at the follow of this. I alluded to it just a few minutes ago when I was talking, but I want you to understand what's going on here. This is, this is, um, this is like a movie almost. It's like a movie where something's going on, and then you flash over here. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, boom, you flash back over here. And these things are happening simultaneously, but you got to flash back and forth so that you can understand how they're working out. So understand that as we go into it. It's going to show in my outline. This will be the worst outline you've ever seen in a sermon in your life, I guarantee it. All right, here we go. First thing, oh, let, me, let me read well. We'll read as we go. The, the disciples' response. In verse 27, it says, just then his disciples returned. Okay, just then. He just told her, I am. So here we go. We're flashing back and forth. He's talking to her, and the disciples are showing up. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want to her or to him? Why are you talking to her? See, you can see this is a difficulty for them. They understand the barriers And they're not sure if they understand what Jesus is doing. And Jesus claims to be the Messiah to her. He says it with his I am moment. And at this momentous point of the conversations, with impeccable timing, the disciples come rambling in, right? Who's got the burgers and the fries? They do. They came back. They're coming back with with the food. And they returned. And they said, what's going on here in their minds? They're surprised. Now, the English word surprise does not do justice to the Greek word that we're looking at in this in the original Greek. Because it literally means to be astonished. It literally means to marvel. But it's interesting, in the construction of the word, this is the beauty of the Greek language. In the construction of the word, it means to be astonished and astonished and astonished and astonished and astonished. It doesn't just, you're not just saying, wow, that's amazing. And then, okay, fine, that's cool. No, you're like, that's amazing. Oh, my goodness, that's so amazing. My mind can't wrap around how amazing this is. See, this is the part of where we're talking about putting yourself into the shoes of the people who are in the moment. The disciples understand this is a huge thing. In our day, it's hard for us to imagine a person that we're not supposed to talk to. But in their day, this was incredibly common. This was just normal. They were astonished. Their cultural conditioning, the fact that they didn't understand Jesus' mission 
they could not wrap their mind around the fact that he was talking to her. And it tells us what they were thinking. To her, they're thinking, what do you want? You know, what? And to him, they're thinking, why are you talking to her? What's wrong? You know, can you imagine that? Because here's what they grew up with. Here's what a rabbi in Jesus' day said. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man should not talk to a woman in the street, not even talk to his own wife, and especially not any other woman, on account of what men will say. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I don't endorse this. All right? But here's the you see what they're saying? Now, this doesn't even bring up the idea of a Samaritan woman. This is just women in general. Do not talk to them. Do not. So they're speechless. They're speechless. They're, they're just flabbergasted. They cannot believe what they're seeing. We have, to, we have to understand that. We have to get a feel for that to understand how momentous this is, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is changing the world. And this is one of those moments where he's changing the world. They're thinking, why are you talking? Jesus, this is beneath you. That's what they wanted to say, but it says they said nothing. So that's the disciples' response. Now let's look at the woman's response. This is in verses 28 and 29. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they show up, and she can see. I mean, there is no doubt that she knows what they're thinking. And so she's like, time to go. But interesting thing, she leaves her water pot. Now, a water pot is not an insignificant thing, all right? This is not something that's just cheap, and you can pick them up a dime a dozen. And she leaves it. And what does that tell us? She is coming back. She's like, this seems maybe it's going to, this is my thought. She, she's looking at this could be a little bit of a hostile situation. I'll just back off for a while. Give a little room. And I'm going to go back to my town because I want people to come back with me when I come back because they're going to be amazed. And so she left her pot. She's coming back. I think I mean, I think if we had everybody kind of thinks about this, theologians write about this, when did this woman become a believer? I think it may have been right now. She, she realized, she goes to town. She suddenly realizes that this is so important, other people need to know. Think about that. She suddenly realizes what I am experiencing right now is so important. I have to tell everyone. I have to do it. So she goes and she starts telling people. She says, you come, see, come, see, look for yourself. Decide for yourself. And she's incredibly wise. I love this story. She is incredibly wise in how she goes about this. Her background, which the town knew about, hardly qualified her to teach others about spiritual issues, right? Everyone knew about her. Also, in Samaria, as Judea and Samaria, a woman instructing men was not going to go down well. 
And so she phrased it very carefully. She very carefully figured out how she was going to, and, and I mean, I don't know, if, like this is the trying to put yourself in their shoes. I can imagine, you know, being her, walking back to the town. How am I going to tell people this? Because if I say it this way, the men are going to get mad. If I say it this way, well, the women are mad at me anyways. And if I say, blah, 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 and she's trying to think that through, you know, do I, what do I say? Turn or burn? Sanctify French fry? No, none of those. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, and she starts working through it. And she goes to them and she says, come, see. Like, I'm not telling you what you have to do, but I'm telling you, you should come see this. This is amazing, right? She vouched for the fact, the fact that he knew what he should not know about her. And she brings up the possibility that he's the Messiah, all the while inviting them to come see for themselves. In other words, she says, don't take my word for it. This is a master class in sharing good news. Jesus showed her her need, and then he made his claim that he's the provision for her need. And she went and told others, you need to see this person. He knows my need, and I think he may be the provision for my need. Come and see for yourself. So now we have the town's response, and that starts with verse 30. They came out of the town and made their way towards him. And this is the response that it's important because, it, because if, if, you know, I think about this. If you or I were trying to reach, say, this town of Sychar for, for Christ, this town of, this town of half-breeds that have a lot of crazy ideas, a lot of weird theology, a lot of just, they're, they're kind of different and, and uh, they're dangerous. So how are we going to reach this town? How are we going to reach this town? Well, first of all, you know, we would say it's got to be a man. In this culture, it's got to be a man. That'd be a requirement, not an option. Secondly, they've got to have good training because, man, this is going to be a difficult one. This is going to be hard, hard work to reach this town for Jesus Christ. It's got to be somebody important that they'll listen to. We need a basketball player that's come to Christ, right? We need a football player that's come to Christ. Then people will listen. It can't be a normal person. And it's got to be well-funded. we got to start. we got to put up some billboards first just to get people thinking about it. And then we got to get on the radio, just a few little short blips, and then occasionally they get a little longer and we give a little more, right? And what if somebody in this committee meeting on how to reach this town said, i got a great idea. How about somebody that no one in the town trusts? Let's get that person. That's crazy. How about somebody that can't go to the well in the morning like the rest of the people because of, well, the rest of the people. No one likes her. The town floozy, that's the one. That's, that's crazy. Do you see how that goes against <clears throat> every, it goes against everything we would think about how things should be done. It goes against how a lot of the things we do are done as Christians. And she went back. She was willing, and God used her. Now, I don't want to say it's wrong to get someone who's famous to share their testimony. That's not, what, that's not my point. My point is this. God can use anyone. I don't care what your background is. God can use you. Excuse me. I don't care what your history is, God can use you. I don't care where you're at now. I don't care where you were. I don't care. God can use you. He used her in a powerful way. God's main requirement is just someone who's willing. And so the town 
started making their way back to Jesus. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, right? Here we go. We go back to point one, the disciples' response, part two. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him. So that's what the meanwhile is telling us. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? All right. So Jesus says, I have this food to eat that you know nothing about. They're like, what? We use that slow drive through at Burger King. And you, you got something quick from the place that will not be named that serves chicken? The disciples did not have an understanding of the sense that that something momentous was happening. All they felt was being accusatory and astonished. I always think of Peter, and I think of Peter because I feel like in some ways I'm like Peter. I shoot my mouth off sometimes. I say things I regret quickly. But I can imagine Peter saying, this is ridiculous. I told you guys we shouldn't leave him alone. Talking to a Samaritan and a woman at that. What in his name does he think he's doing, right? Peter just can't understand. So they go to what they know. They don't understand something spiritual is happening, so they just think, man, we got this food. It's time to eat. We're concerned for him. He needs to eat. We're not in a safe place. We need to keep moving. We need to keep moving. And so they take it literally. Now, it's easy to beat up the disciples on these kind of things to think what dopes they are and make fun of Peter. That's easy. I just did it. But they are us. Sometimes something momentous is happening, and we don't even see it. We don't have the eyes. We don't have the will. We don't have the desire to see it. You look at the situation in our country. From whatever side you look at it, Maybe the last four years were fearful for you. Maybe the next four years are very fearful for you. Can I tell you something? God doesn't want us to have a spirit of fear. He doesn't want us to hate. He wants us to be excited about something. He is doing something. In 2016, God, the Father didn't go, what? Trump won? I never expected this. In 2020, he didn't go, wait a minute. No, this isn't what I had in mind. Not Biden, right? Neither one of those are true. God is at work. He is at work. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we're not to have a spirit of fear. We're we're to have the open eyes and excitement because God is working. He's doing something. See, our problem is we don't want to see that. Being angry and afraid is comfortable. We fall into it so easy. And the disciples are us because they've missed something and they've decided to go with anger or just be astonished at it. We tend to live as if our problems and our needs and our desires are the most important things. And God is trying to get us to look beyond ourselves and serve others. Because electronic things hate me, this has just started an update. Oh, Apple. So we're on number four now. <laughs> Those in the back will help me out. Here we go with this convoluted outline, the response of Jesus. All right? And that starts in verse 34. My food, said Jesus, 
He's working with them. They think he's talking about literal food. Nope, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the field. They are ripe for harvest. Verse 36, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their label, of their labor, <laughs> their label. So to keep them thinking, Jesus has to, he has, he's explaining what this food is that he's talking about. He starts couching it in more obviously uh, um, spiritual terms to help them kind of get the idea. He's, his food is doing the will and the work of God. Jesus is saying it's more important than physical needs. Is that hard for you? It's hard for me. It's hard for me. Doing the work of Jesus is more important than my physical needs. Loving and serving Jesus is more important than my physical needs. Jesus is saying that this is more important than anything. It's more important than my comfort. It's more important than my desires. Because this is eternal. And my physical needs and my comfort and my desires are temporary. They will end. It's easy to become preoccupied with the needs of the moment, but Jesus invites us to get beyond our own interests into our own, stop thinking about our own little lunch like the disciples are thinking, but to open our eyes to the souls of those who are searching, who are searching for answers to their deepest needs. There's so many verses that show that. In, it, when Job uh, was going through all these afflictions, in Job 23.12, it says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In, in this John passage, in verse 34, it says, he says, I want to do the will. And it's, that, that Greek is in the way, idea of continually doing, all the time doing the will of God. And I want to finish his work. That is, bring it to completion. That is, to fulfill a purpose that he has assigned me. Jesus teaches now about something they know all about, sowing and reaping. They're in an agrarian society. Everyone knows there you sow. We know it. We're not even agrarian, and we know it. Someone sows, and it takes a while, and then someone reaps, right? Maybe the same person, maybe different people. But both, both share in the joy when the harvest comes. Both are rewarded. And so in verse 35, when he says, open your eyes, literally, he, he means lift up your eyes. Stop looking at this stuff here and get your eyes up. So you see that into the distance. Now, this is really key when he says this, right? So follow me on this. He tells them, I want you to lift up your eyes. And then he tells them, I want you to open your eyes, right? Why? Because the fields are ripe to harvest. But now remember where we're at in this movie. Back and forth, back and forth. Last thing we heard about the town, they're on their way. Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. And what do they see? The town people coming. He, they're coming. He says, there it is. There's the harvest. They're looking up for wheat fields. And he said, look, here they come. At that very moment, here comes the town. People, the town people of Sychar. With this woman, they realized, was the one Jesus was talking to. 
and suddenly is hitting them, Jesus says, there's the harvest. There's where your time should go. That's what's more important than what you eat. That's what's more important than what I eat. This is the will of the Father that I want to see done. When he says, open your eyes and look, that word look is this idea of to think and work through your mind what you're looking at. To understand the implications, the ramifications of what you're looking at. So he says, lift up your eyes. And they lift up their eyes. And they look and they see the people of town coming. And he says, now look, understand the ramifications of what you're seeing. He says, so this, Jesus is a master of this, the timing that's going on. They see these people. That's the harvest. That's my nourishment. That's my purpose. Do you see it now? These are human beings who need me. This is the most important thing in my life. And he's teaching his disciples, I want it to be the most important thing in your life. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you are the most important thing. You are on his mind right now. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so he says in verse 36, the sower and the reaper rejoice. They rejoice together. In Luke 15.10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. I mentioned this before. I used to always think that that was, I, I don't know what I thought. I would always read that, and I would talk to people about how those angels are just rejoicing. But do you see there, it's, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. Who else is left God, God is rejoicing. And that word is like a crazy rejoicing. He's so excited, so excited when one person repents. You may be a sower, you may be a reaper, but both will rejoice. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, he says, act wisely towards outsiders, redeeming the time, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And that word time is that word kairos. That word that's not chronological time. That word that means there are certain moments in the life of a person that are full of potential, that are full of meaning, that have an incredible, it's an incredible moment that something could happen. So he says, make the most of those times because they are coming in your life. And then it's interesting because in verse 38, he alludes to others have sown and now you are reaping. Others have sown and now you're reaping. They're looking at these people coming from Sychar and I imagine them thinking, others have sown. And then it dawns on them. Because this, this isn't on the screen, but let me read you this verse from John chapter 3. We just went over this a little bit ago. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. For a long time, they didn't know where this little town was. Now they're pretty sure. They've narrowed it down to a to an area that is just north of Sychar. Just north of Sychar. In fact, let's, do we have that map? Yeah, okay. I don't know. Man, I can hardly see it, so I don't know if you guys can see it. Where it says Shechem, which is Sychar. You see to the, 
to the upper right of that, real quick, is a branch of a river. That's where Anon was, is, or was. There's just ruins now. On that river, because there's much water. John the Baptist was baptizing and preaching repentance because the Messiah is coming about 10 miles north of Sychar. And Jesus says to his disciples, someone else has laid the groundwork for you. Someone else has sown, and now you're reaping. We're going to reap. It's like Jesus saying, just watch this. We're going to reap. So John baptized with the message that the Messiah is coming, and that is, that is why they were primed to listen to this woman. When she says, this could be the Messiah. Don't you come and see. This could be the Messiah. They were like, we were just hearing not that long ago about the Messiah's coming. We better check it out. She's a little wacky, but we better check it out, right? And so they were primed to listen to that woman. The sower had preceded the reaper. Now we go to our next point three, which is point three, the town's response, part two. All right, and that is verses 39 to 42, and I'll read those to you. 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know, it's an incredible thing in that culture, in that day, in that society, in the world as it was back then, that God used a woman to spark a revival. That's the exact opposite of what people would expect. So the disciples, here they are, you know, we're going back and forth, back and forth. They look up. What do they see? They see these people coming. They're interested. They asked him to stay. Imagine how the disciples felt about that. Come and live with us. They're like, it's a trap. Right? Don't do it, Jesus. <laughs> We've seen this one before. Right? Come on, Jesus. Don't be. Anyways. Everything was going according. You know, they're all afraid and worried. And in this day and age, you can be afraid and worried at what's going on all around us in our world. But everything was going according to Jesus' plan. It's just that everything was not going according to the plans of the disciples. That's all. God wasn't following their idea of what was best. And I'm really glad about that. I have ideas sometimes of what is best. And I am glad God doesn't do it that way. The older you get, the more you look back and realize how stupid you were when you thought you were smart. You know, you think about it. You think about what you thought was important 15 years ago. And how now you look back at that and go, duh. Just remember what you think is important now in 15 years. You're going to be regretting it. Just the way it works. Just a little help from me. All right. So when things in your life are not going to, according to plan, look for God's plan. Because your plan may be at odds with God's plan, and this would be a good time then to get into the right plan instead of following the wrong one. It says that there are many believers. It seems that the first big group of people that believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah were Samaritans. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. 
because I'm sure that's just like, you guys all got it wrong. Look what I'm doing. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. What amazing story. The person least likely to become a follower of Christ evangelized her whole town. In their high school yearbook, she was voted least likely to love God, right? And she converted the whole town. This is the power and the plan of God. They came, they saw. And he uses that word for see again, to look at, to see, and to understand the, concept, the, 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 the ramifications, to understand what you're looking at. And they believed. So now for point five, our response You know, as we respond to this, what can we learn from this? We go through this. There's some obvious things to learn from this. There's obvious things about how we we reach out to others, how we treat others. But we have to mention, we have to remember, first of all, if we reach out to others, when, I shouldn't, why did I say if? When we reach out to others, first thing, we have to speak truth. You know, Jesus confronted her with her need. He exposed with truth. And he confronted her with himself. He showed her truth. He said, I am. I am the way. She was asking questions. He said, no, no, not not the temple in Jerusalem. No, 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 not Mount Gerizim, which is right there. So close, you can see it on the map. It's right there. Neither, neither, neither. It's me. It's me. Access to the Father is through me. And our response to this passage is obvious in some ways. God is calling us to be harvesters. He's calling us to be evangelist. Evangel is is the word there, and and that word simply means this, good news. That's all, just good news. But what is that? You see, something is news to you only if you're ignorant of it. And so good news is something you need to know in order to have power because ignorance is weakness. If you've ever been in a conversation and you realize that you do not know what these people are talking about. It is beyond your ability to understand what they're talking about. That can be a very intimidating thing. You know, you get around some people and they start talking. Um, um, I, I, w- I was a kid. I mean, I, I was a uh, military brat. And so we moved around. And whenever a group of military people got together, and I've forgotten all of the lingo, but they always used to, you know, what's your MOD? Well, my CPA is a BUC, and I got to go, you know, STP, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they would use that kind of language. And if you don't know that language, you are totally out of the conversation. It's hard to keep up. If you get with a group of people who are scientists, and they start going off, it can be hard, to, and it can be very intimidating. And so good news brings power, because now you begin to understand something. You know, if a boxer goes into a fight and nobody has happened to mention that his opponent is left-handed, he's going to be in trouble for a bit because that can be painful news. If you rent an apartment and suddenly you realize there's no AC in this apartment, that can be uncomfortable news. But news empowers you. It keeps you from making mistakes. It can keep you from making mistakes. It brings out, it, it, it takes care of the ignorance you have in any particular area. So when my wife said, yes, I will marry you, that was good news. It wasn't just news. It was good news. When someone says, if you're, if you're with a doctor and the doctor says the cancer's in remission, that's good news. 
And evangelism is simply being a person who's willing to spread good news. And it is not narrow-minded to tell someone, I have discovered something that has changed my life and I want to share it with you. That is not narrow-minded. We start with the truth. I don't believe the gospel because it gives me a purpose in life. I don't believe the gospel because it's transforming. I don't believe the gospel because it's dynamic. I believe it because it's true. By the way, it is transforming. It is dynamic. And it does give me a purpose in life. That's not why I believe it. I believe it because it's true. And the truth of it is transforming and dynamic and meaningful and purposeful. So we got to speak the truth. And Jesus taught us this. We've got to speak the truth in love. We can all probably think of examples of obnoxious evangelism, right? Because the gospel tells us something. It tells us that we're worse than we thought. And it also tells us that we're loved and valued more than we thought. So there's no room in there for obnoxiousness or superiority. You just can't be a part of the deal. This woman, she tells her neighbors, what's her motivation? Superiority? <laughs> With her reputation? What, did Jesus say, now go tell everybody? I command you. No. The love of Christ, the love for her and her reciprocal love drove her. I have to tell them. I have to tell them. We understand the gospel tells us that Jesus is saying this to you, saying this to me personally. Bob, I love you. I died for you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. He's saying that to you. But when he says it to you, he doesn't use Bob. As much as you wish he did, he doesn't. A little superiority there. Just what I said we shouldn't have. Okay. And so what happens? Paul talks about this. It's not on your screen, but he just talks about this. He says God, God's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, therefore. Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for him and was raised according to the dead. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against him. And he's committed that message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors. When we speak, what does an ambassador do? He speaks for the United States of America. He gets up and he says, this is what the United States of America says. And he speaks. We're ambassadors. We say, this is what God says. He loves you. He died for you. This woman became an evangelist. She became an ambassador for Christ. Not because she had to. She couldn't help it. If Jesus is who he says, if he's who he says he is, then we have something worth dying for. If the Bible is true, that's worth dying for. Now, I'm not volunteering. You know, it's not like I'm looking for it. But for most of us, and myself included, 
we can be stopped by the threat of someone making fun of us. We can be stopped by the possibility of being looked down upon, of mocked. But here in John 4, if we take this passage seriously, then some things happen. We may end up talking to people we don't want to talk to or that others say we should not talk to. We may go places we don't want to go or that others say we should not go. We may have to talk and listen to people we don't agree with. We may have to love people we don't like. If this is true, this is what happened. We have to break barriers. We have to break down walls of separation and become the people who say, be reconciled to God. He loves you. He's done all this for you. Why am I telling you? Because he's done it for me, and I am not the same. Because that's what this woman said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this passage, this incredible story of this woman who you use in such a powerful way. And God, you have a way of breaking down walls and barriers, of taking the people that the world around says are not useful and you make them useful and of taking people that the world looks down upon and you lift them up. God, we want to be those kind of people. Help us not to perpetuate the stereotypes that our culture puts on people, but help us to be people who are loving and full of grace to those around us. And in doing that, We have the chance, the possibility to change a life for eternity. And God, you've called us to that, and there is no greater calling in this world. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.